0: Hey, oboists! Have you ever found it difficult to sort out when and how to find a new oboe or English horn? Oboe Chicago streamlines the process, providing personal and professional consultation and a large selection of lovely instruments. The process feels comfortable and thorough. Selection includes Loray of Paris, Howarth of London, Covey Oboes, and Fox products. For a current listing of Oboe Chicago's selection, please visit www.obochicago.com. For a credit of $100 towards shipping, mention Double Read Dish when you call or email Shauna. That's obochicago.com.
1: Chemical City Double Reads is a full-service double read shop specializing in the sale of instruments, cane, accessories, and sheet music. Double Read Dish listeners can enjoy free shipping with code DRDISH. Visit them in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or online at www.chemicalcityreads.com.
0: Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read
1: Dish, a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. happy friday oh it's friday it's that blessed blessed day
0: yeah, yeah 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 i'm excited how are you doing
1: i'm i'm good this is an appropriate dish topic for today <laughs> we're talking about self-care mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i'd love to start with you because i just spent the last 15 minutes just like screaming complaints into the microphone pre-recording So
0: venting is a type of (laughs) self-care, expressing your feelings to your loved ones. That's an important part. You're making room for your emotions.
1: Oh, thank you. That's so gracious.
0: I admire you for that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) She says covered in like black goo from my screaming. (laughs) Listen,
0: as we all know, teaching in these like unprecedented times.
1: If I hear that phrase one more
0: time, (laughs) it feels longer. Like this is Mm -hmm. week four of the semester uh, for us. And I I would say it feels like later in the semester.
1: (laughs) I would say that the students would agree. (laughs) Yes. Jackie, what are you doing for self care these days?
0: I have actually been really trying to be thoughtful and prioritizing smart choices for me. And I've done a couple of things that kind of came to mind when we said we wanted to talk about this. The first is that I'm currently on a social media break. Yes. I decided to do that. Well, I did one this time last year and it really served me well, I even just kind of the um, I know shame shouldn't really be a part of self care, but like when you first go on a social media break, realizing that your thumb has a physical impulse to go to the app, I was like, whoa. 100,000%. And so just kind of taking a little bit of time to undo that and focus my attention elsewhere. But I did it not so much like, oh, the things I see weigh on me or I'm performative, but I did find I was like kind of doing the mindless scroll. Oh, yeah. And if I add it up all the time I was doing, it's like, I don't have time to read. I don't ever have time to take a bath or blah, blah, blah. It's like, yes, you do, you're scrolling your time away. And so I realized that for me, I needed to pull back a little bit on that. And I am trying to use the time not on like, okay, so I'll read this article on the internet, it said, But like reading a book and I got my yeah. Pullman library card. I didn't have my Pullman library card yet. Look at you. And I got that and I checked out the uh, contactless book pickup. So I'm doing that. And this weekend is my husband's birthday. He's Valentine's Day, baby. Oh, I love it. Um, and so we've decided to get out of town. It's uh, we're not breaking any COVID rules. We're not seeing anybody. We're not, but we got an Airbnb in a neighboring town, and we're just leaving our laptops and work behind, and we're gonna just go somewhere else uh, with a comfy looking couch and a smart TV, and we're gonna get some takeout, and we're gonna unplug literally and uh, veg out and quick weekend, little vacation trip. And I'm so looking forward to that. <laughs> oh my gosh. And just kind of realizing it doesn't have to be, you know, going to Italy for two weeks to just get a little vacay, recoup, reconnect time. That's incredible. So those are two things that kind of come to mind that I'm doing for myself, which is, I guess, self-care. What are, how, is, how
1: are you approaching that lately? I have a new hobby, which is the curly girl hair method. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been learning as I'm growing my hair, because as you know, this is the first time in like 15 years, I've had long hair. <laughs> and it's, it's not quite shoulder length is very long for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been growing out a pixie for quite a while. And uh, I always thought, I had super bad frizzy hair. Turns out I just have a lot of texture in my hair. So I've been like diving into all these different like tutorials on like how Mm -hmm. to do curly hair and like how to make it real cool looking and healthy. And it's been giving me something to obsess over that is not reads or practicing or work. So Mm -hmm. that's been really distracting and fun. Um, I have also, if I get to the end of the (laughs) if I get to the end of the day and I'm like breathing fire out of my mouth I'll just take a nighttime shower
0: uh I am so glad you brought that up that is very therapeutic
1: I love a nighttime shower yes do you know what else I've been doing that's been super key is uh our puppy Ruby is so fun and rambunctious and just (laughs) the crazy meatball (laughs) And she's wonderful and I love her, but it makes it very difficult to work Mm -hmm. (laughs) from home during the day. So we, my wife and I have compromised and we are taking her to doggy daycare once or twice a week so that she can just go nut with other dogs for four hours in the morning and then come home and pass out for the rest of the day.
0: Just exhausted.
1: (laughs) And I'll tell you, that is the most brilliant idea my wife has ever had. Because I was like, yeah, I'm, work- I'm with them all day. And she's like, well, I'm at work all day. Blah, blah, blah. We get home at you know in the, in the evening. We're like, it's your turn. No, it's your turn. <laughs> so she's like, why don't we just take the puppy to doggy daycare and have someone else make her tired? <laughs> and I was like, that's the most brilliant idea you've ever had. And it is fantastic because she's so much happier and mm-hmm. so much more tired. And mm-hmm. it's just wonderful. It's wonderful.
0: That's awesome. Something else I've been doing lately is um, pursuing things that I was maybe reluctant to pursue. Mm. So I don't know if you ever like, have an idea and it's like, oh, that would be cool. And it just kind of remains out there on the periphery of like something I might do someday, maybe. And there have been a couple of ideas that um, require a lot of vulnerability of me um, that I have recently returned to. One, I know I'm talking around it. I'll just say it. One is composing. And I was playing around with a couple ideas, actually a couple years ago, and I literally was like, this is stupid. This makes me feel embarrassed. I'm putting it away. And like, I recently got back out playing around with some ideas and maybe it'll go somewhere, maybe it won't, but just saying like no, if you have this inclination, just kind of pull the thread, like we were talking about last episode, and play around. And so I'm kind of proud of myself for doing that and not basically unpacking some toxic perfectionism around, like, Mm. if I'm not Rachmaninoff, it's (laughs) a bad idea to play around on Finale and just, uh, you know, have some fun.
1: Well, I wasn't born Brahms. I guess I'm never doing this. Right. It's like, you don't have to be...
0: Rembrandt to enjoy an adult coloring book and have some fun with that Jackie. (laughs) (laughs) I default to a place of intensity and perfectionism and it has to be the best thing ever. And it's like, I do too. You can just kind of improvise and have fun and play around. And um, so doing that, there are some classes at WSU as faculty, we get to take free classes, which You know, you don't want to enroll in too many and have the tail start to wag the dog and be like stressed out because you're taking a full credit load while teaching a full credit load. I
1: must be perfect at (laughs) teaching a full load and taking these fun classes.
0: No one needs like 800 degrees, but (laughs) there have been some things that I was like, oh, if I could redo undergrad again, I would take a this class or Mm -hmm. a that class. And this week I wrote the emails of like, so how do we go about – enrolling you. in those classes what does that look like and and blah 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 and so just starting to see of uh, you know what it would take to take those things that seem fun on the periphery and create space for them in my world
1: that reminds me of a concept i was recently introduced to it's uh, from this podcast that I can't say the name of because it has a bad word in it, but it's unf your brain. Oh, unf your brain. Okay. That's right. And I listened to this episode about perfectionist fantasies <laughs> and tomorrow thinking, and it's this idea of like I have this goal that I'm going to be the world's best oboist, and I'm going to have the most incredible career. And that's a job for a version of me that doesn't exist. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. And
1: it is a fantasy. So when you say, okay, in the future, I'm gonna be oboist number one. And then you say, okay, great. What does it take to be oboist number one? Can you practice three hours today? And you're like, absolutely not. I can't practice three hours today. That shows you that it is a perfectionist fantasy because it's not the current version of you that can take the tiny steps to do that thing. It is some imaginary version that doesn't exist and it is uh, an addictive, seductive myth that you will never reach.
0: If the steps I can take today will get me toward that goal, then it's realistic and healthy. If the steps I can take toward it it's still out of reach, then I need to reassess and manage my expectations. Yep. I'm not constantly disappointing myself.
1: Yeah. It's like, what can you do today? But yeah. And that's, that's enough. Yeah. And it, and it's like you said, managing expectations. Okay. Mm -hmm. What can I do today to get me closer to this goal? And it's tiny things. It's Mm -hmm. not huge things. We're so seduced by the huge thing. Yeah. But we don't expect ourselves to actually do it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And for me, it's been welcoming other goals alongside, I want to be the greatest bassoonist ever and carving out time for other parts of myself that I think I'm very, it's very easy for me to make bassoon goals and career goals. And then in the process, other parts of my personality or humanity kind of get untended to. And so I've been trying to do a better job of that recently. And I don't know if that has a ton to do with the oboe and the bassoon, kind of glee and Jackie therapy hour, but it's our podcast, so deal with
1: it. Janet Ingle loves the oboe. She has built her business on providing high quality handmade reeds, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Janet Ingle Reeds, you get prompt communication, reeds or cane handcrafted to your specifications, and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, sometimes much faster. Single orders or monthly read subscriptions are welcome, and she'll work with you to find the combination of response, resistance, stability, and flexibility that is right for you. Janet doesn't just do reads either. Look at janetingle.com for a selection of read cases, swabs, and tools, or for read making videos, classes, and boot camps. Podcast listeners can use the code. Dish for 10% off their first order at jenetingle.com.
0: Ugly Duckling Oboes is dedicated to the development of young oboe players. They provide quality handmade oboe reeds, private lessons, and high quality oboe sales, rentals, and consignments. The oboes that they rent are conservatory mechanism oboes that include the left-hand F key and low B flat key all are maintained by oboe-specific technicians. In-person lessons are available as well as virtual lessons for students who live outside the geographic area or have transportation and scheduling challenges. They also offer online college audition coaching for high school juniors and seniors who plan to audition to be music majors. Visit UglyDucklingOboes.com for more details on how you can set up yourself for success and sign up for their newsletter. That's uglyducklingobos.com. We are pleased to welcome John D., Professor of Oboe at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Welcome to Double Read Dish.
2: Thank you so much. I appreciate that very much. Uh, it's great to be here with you.
0: Could we help our listeners get to know you a little bit better? by introducing yourself to them and talking them through your training and educational journey.
2: Sure. Uh, I guess just currently uh, as said, I'm the um, I, I'm actually the Bill A. Nugent endowed professor of music performance and oboe professor at the university of Illinois, um, which is very, very cool. Um, and I was so fortunate to uh, come into a position that, that they gave me that endowed Professorship, um, and and I I think that was because of the years that I was fortunate enough to play in orchestras and 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 such, and so I do serve a few capacity in a few different capacities over there, uh, in addition to teaching the oboe. So that's what I'm currently doing. I'm also principal oboe of two local orchestras that have the um, uh, honor of playing in the Cranert Center for the Performing Arts, which is such a beautiful facility, it has like five halls. It was built by the people who built the um, uh, uh, Lincoln Center in New York mm. and and so we play in there in the Great Hall and it's the Champaign-Urbana Symphony and also the Symphonia de Camera. So there's a active musical life here in, in a small town of Champaign, about 150,000, but uh, a tremendous art center and Sometimes we start to feel like it's the center of the world uh, in so many ways. Where when whenever you travel, people seem to come from here, and so it's a great, uh, wonderful part of my life just being associated with a, such a great university with um, an active arts um, um, situation. I I guess when it comes to background, um, I grew up not too far from here in Chicago. It's about two and a half hours up the road, and um, And really, very typically, uh, for a lot of us, because we're speaking to students um, on this uh, broadcast, and, you know, I think it's very important. I I was very lucky to start, like many of us, in a a healthy band program. I didn't have a, a grammar school program at all. I didn't even know what Noble was until probably the end of eighth grade. And uh, actually my brother brought an oboe home from the band director when he was in high school before me and he, and he said, you have a younger brother, here's an oboe, see if he wants to play it. And I wanted to play bassoon like my brother, but, but uh, dad thought it might be good to play something smaller and lighter and cheaper. So we went <laughs> we went in and I tried the oboe I looked it up <laughs> and what's an oboe and I, you know, and, and I just took a shot at it. And I just started out uh, right at the beginning of high school, really just before high school and I'd ask my mom if it sounded like an oboe yet, because we'd play some recordings. And she said, nope, nope. And not for years. She said, nope, nope, nope. And so I kept working harder and harder to try to make it sound like an oboe. But in any case, I went through the high school program, which was a terrific one. Um, I was in the Chicago Youth Symphony for three years, which helped so much, and and through solo contests and and uh, scholarshiping through there, I won, um, I, I got partial scholarships to go to Interlochen for three summers, and they actually offered me uh, positions to go there during the year, um, but I had a really good s- situation with my high school and with the youth orchestra in Chicago, so I didn't do that. But I got to study with Dan Stoper when I was up there, and that was a terrific experience, and and then I stayed, uh, again in Chicago. I had a full scholarship, uh, uh, that I won at Interlochen for Peabody Conservatory. And that would have been four years of undergraduate there, but, uh, Ray Still, actually, I was studying, I started studying with Lyric Opera and Chicago Symphony people pretty early on. And Ray Still said, why don't you just stay here and study with me? And okay. I didn't know any better, but, uh, so I went to school, uh, locally and, and, um, uh studied with uh, Chicago Symphony and Lyric Opera people. Uh, June Woolwich was English Horn of Lyric Opera and Gladys Elliott, Principal Oboe, and studied with her for five years. And, and Michael Hennock and uh, Bob Mayer from the Chicago Symphony originally was my uh, previous teacher. And and then Ray Still and and then later John Mack. Um, but in Chicago, I went on from after high school, I um, started college again there and uh, with Ray Still and, and played in the Civic Orchestra of Chicago. And that opened up the, the gates to playing extra with Chicago Symphony quite a bit actually and doing recordings. And, and so I was sort of getting my feet wet there. And all of a sudden one day a phone call uh, rang from my first teacher uh, or second teacher, Bob, Robert Mayer from the Chicago Symphony who had retired and he called me up, and he said, I've, I've heard that there's a Prince Bilobo opening uh, becoming available in the Florida Orchestra in Tampa, and uh, you ought to take the audition. So I did. I flew down there, and it was my first professional audition, and I won. And so I was 21 at the time, and I was only a junior in college, uh, but I finished up college. I was taking extra credit so I could do it in the summertime of the third year, and and I moved down to Tampa and started there. I played in Tampa for three years. Um, and then I was, uh, I, I won a position over in the, what became the Florida Philharmonic in Southeast Florida, and it served all the way from Miami, all the way up through the Palm beaches. And uh, I spent the next 23 years there playing with the Florida Philharmonic, principal oboe, and also the Florida grand opera. And I taught for 12 years at the University of Miami, and I taught for 12 years and started the program at what was called the Herod Conservatory, but it's called the uh, Music Conservatory at Lynn University now. In fact, when I left to come up to Illinois, Joe Robinson was um, asked to come down, and he's still teaching there. Um, So uh, I spent 23 years on the East Coast and had a wonderful time and career there. And, And then the University of Illinois opened up um a position that brought me sort of back home to with uh what was left of my family and up in the Chicago area and I thought this is a great opportunity and I started a family and uh, with a wife and two boys and so if we my wife said let's try it let's go and and so I won the position which was terrific and I've been here now 16 years so I'm going on 20 and and I feel like it's a third career for me I just I'm so grateful to to have this wonderful position and so that kind of is more than I even want to say about myself but I've been very lucky in my career and started very early so of course starting so early I'm only uh, hmm, 40 no 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 I'm, I'm st- still young enough to to keep active and and uh, a <laughs> kind of long career so I'm, I'm very grateful.
1: That's such a fascinating journey you've seemed to have just Reimagined yourself
2: yeah it's well really people say you know how can you know how can we make a living in the oboe and all of that and and um, well yeah i think you guys know better than anybody work hard try everything that comes up and you know doors open and and as they open take a look inside and see how it is and i remember i was really studying um to be an architect, I wanted, I was, well, I liked math and sciences. So even when I had a full music program available, available to me in high school, I, I uh, still went science and math. And I remember when I won the job in Tampa, my father, um, who supported me, but he said, you know, you're a smart kid, you, you could do anything. I th- thought you wanted to be a engineer, an engineer and architect. And I said, well, dad, I've, I've come to understand it's not so easy getting these playing jobs and I might as well try it. If it doesn't work out, I could go back, you know, but he sort of cried. He says, you know, you're not, you're not going to de it up. He didn't cry, uh, but he, but he said, you know, it's a hard life and musicians don't make very much money. And I said, well, it's what I enjoy most. And as we know, if you enjoy it the most, good things come. You enjoy mm-hmm. getting up in the morning, going to work, you put things together, you, um, I started a music contracting business in Florida, I had for 20 years, in addition to the teaching and the playing, and, you know, just being involved with the great people we get to work with, the high level of ability and discipline and talent that, that are, that are our colleagues, that we, we, it's been a great life, working with you guys, having the interview today, by two uh, professionals that really know what they're doing, it's a, Every every bit of it is a positive.
1: We before we started recording, we were talking about how part of the joy of talking to people in this podcast is getting to getting to know uh, the oboe lineage and the teachers who can no longer be here through their students. And I was wondering if you could tell us anything about your experiences studying with these illustrious giants in the field that are no longer around. Can you share any memories with us?
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, I think, again, when when I think back to my fortunate exposure to these, these people who, before us, devoted their lives to music and to the craft, you know, the reed making and the, to the to the art of making music and to the sharing of their life with students and being so lucky to study with these people. I think my overview of working with some of those, you know, greatest names that we associate now in our business is that they shared the things that were the most important. They shared the love of music and and sort of ingrained in, in their students the well-being, just knowing things would be okay if you you know and how important it is to take great um, care of creating a reputation and a standard in what we do by working hard, developing your fundamentals with strength and dignity and 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 as we know, it's a small world. We've heard that, and therefore, to treat one another with kindness and professionalism, and to meet and work with these people that have survived through what we know is a very difficult business, I was fortunate to 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 just observe the good traits that they that they had and shared abundantly. Um, Gladys Elliott was a, a gone now but principal of the lyric opera was just one of these people that would wisely share bits and pieces of information personal professional and otherwise John Mack someone who would give his uh you know right foot for any of his students and would would be up we'd be talking at one in the morning you know like What's he doing up and talking to me? Or, we're, we're spending his weekend in his studio at home and not being with his family. I, I would say, Mr. Mack, would you, would you want to go now to dinner with your family? And you, no, no, we'll go out to dinner. It's like, and I'm thinking, come on, you know, it's, it's uh, unbelievable. But he did that with everybody. You know, he mm-hmm. was just so giving, mm-hmm. and I think that's one of those things. Like I said, with working with the types of people that we're fortunate to work with, um, it's a great profession and we're very lucky to be in it and to have positions that, that sustain our, our life. Um, but I think that's the one thing that really comes to mind. Personal, it's very rare too. I had my first teacher, um, again, I wasn't literally my first, my second was uh, Robert Mayer from Chicago Symphony in Northwestern. And, and he was one that taught me, John, there are a lot of good players a lot of good teachers, but very few mentors. And he was the first and and really others showed by example, but he was one that really defined mentorship and brought it home to me. And I'm really grateful that I learned that because I really try to be a mentor to my students. And as we know, that means those extra efforts in writing letters, emails, phone calls, whatever it means, the extra time, the extra effort time away from your family. It really is. It, it's, but it's rewarding. I mean, it's sort of like the, the efforts you put into anything we do equal or are, or surpassed by the benefits that we get out of it personally. So it, it's not something of, of sacrifice as much as reward. And I've, been very lucky to be exposed to some of those teachers uh, that have given me that and, and also um, taught me how to share, I think, with other people.
1: That is really beautiful.
0: I'd love to hear more about your um, approach to and concept of mentoring and maybe a bit about how um, you found your way to the University of Illinois you know, the beginning of your career as you described, it was kind of orchestrally focused. And then you're at, you know, this phenomenal school of music as an oboe professor. Was that a gradual change or just a manifestation of this concept of mentorship? Uh, I'd love, I know it's a big question, but it kind of was formulating as you were speaking.
2: Yeah, um, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, to each of us, you know, our journeys are different. And I think so much of what we end up doing is sort of, it's almost like there's a scent in front of us. What, what we what we enjoy and what we what we look for is what we end up really doing. And I was very fortunate. Well, first off, I suppose two major influences, Ray Still and John Mack, they weren't teach in my eyes anyway, the way they were teaching me were they were not teaching me to. Um, play a second oboe role. And believe me, I, I respect that. And I wish I were a second oboe player for all these years. Um, but what it m- kind of meant was to me, I, it felt like there was a pressure almost put on me to earn a pr- principal oboe job. So I was fortunate to get into that, or I don't think I would have stayed necessarily in the profession. Now, that's a pretty thick statement. But what it, where I'm getting with that is, As principal oboe, and then as you hit a city, um, rather the larger cities, Tampa first being one of them, but then more probably more significantly Miami uh, and the Southeast of Florida. And your principal oboe of of a major orchestra, as I was fortunate to be, I was then invited to um, audition for a position at the University of Miami. Now, in our profession, playing and teaching or teaching and playing, are the primary, I think we pretty much agree, um, means of earning a living and en- enjoying what we, what we study to do. And so I was very fortunate to couple up almost entirely as long as I was performing and considering myself a performer first um, and then teacher second. I was very fortunate to be affiliated then with some really awesome schools um, and schools of music and students and such, and really, really enjoyed it. And as we, we know in the profession, being able to play on stage at night and then try to articulate. I remember at first when I started teaching, it was more like I'd, I'd try to teach through demonstrating. And I, I would use fewer words, fewer descriptive uh, aids. And, and then as I became more experienced as a teacher, I, I really learned that I started to express myself more clearly using words and descriptors because I was thinking about my own playing more thoroughly and as it's been said many times before but as a as a player you become a better te- or a t- become a better teacher as a teacher you become a better player and they both are symbiotic you know to um, in in that they help each other and so I was very lucky to have that relationship um, in teaching as I was playing now when it came to then, I had already put uh, almost 30 years of performing in when the University of Illinois job came up, and at that point, I really did want to consider i uh, con- continue playing, but also I had an orchestra that was taken down. Mm-hmm. Um, the Florida Phil was what had a, had a problem, um, and there it was right during. Uh, a bad period of time and the board of directors uh, eliminated it, which was a difficult time for so many. And one of the first big orchestral uh, catastrophes to occur. And again, I just think a, a, a ray from heaven came down when that position opened up in Illinois, because at that moment, having that possibility was tremendous. And I had already been prepared for teaching because I'd already put in, you know, 25 years of, of schooling on it or, you know, teaching down in Florida. So for me, it was like a natural answer and it wasn't a sacrifice at all because now instead of, you know, being a performer first and a teacher second, I would be a teacher first and a performer second because as, as I mentioned, I've been so fortunate to be able to have two really good orchestras to perform with throughout the season uh while I while I also teach. And if the schedule for teaching gets a little much, it's not a big deal. I can let the management know and uh there can be a substitute brought in. Uh it's not quite like a major orchestra where there's a little more pressure to 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 always be there. Um and so I have some flexibility too. So it was kind of a natural progression for me to go from playing and teaching to teaching and playing. And um and it's been a very good life. So I think I may have approached a couple of your perspectives there. But um, for me, it's just been very seamless. And I'm really grateful for that. I didn't have to make any great leaps. Um, uh, Everything worked out very well.
1: As you hinted at just now, sometimes balancing everything on your plate in teaching and performing and having a family and having you know, all of the different aspects of yourself fed and nourished can be very difficult. So I'd love to ask you about your approach to work-life balance, if that's a thing. We know that some of our, when we ask this question, some of our guests say, what is that?
2: (laughs) No, that's so true. It's very true. I'll tell you what, I yes, I'd be glad to address that. And well, first off, having, um, you know, a partner, having my wife, having children, Uh, uh, responsibilities to to other people, responsibilities to your studio at school, to my to my own kids. You know, in addition to that, you know, I enjoy golf. I enjoy tennis. Um, I'm glad to be able to still get out and play and uh, support my boys who are going through. They've just gone through high school and they've been on the teams and stuff like that. And to, you know, and getting out and just being able to share with them um, our lives um, and also, as we know, we've got read making to do and practicing to do. So, balance is such an important, important thing. What you have to become is organized, you have to become scheduled. I, be- I believe in writing things down actually in the scheduled book so you can put time aside for things and make them like appointments. So, they're not optional. You actually have to become disciplined to them. And to become efficient in everything you do, uh, to, to really assure the best job possible uh, when, when the least of time is available. So I think that knowing what you're going to do when. So if, 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 uh, if it's read making, uh, there are times when, as we know, we practice and then we stop playing. We fool with our read. We play three more minutes or we fool with our read. We go back. That's okay to do that every once in a while.
1: I feel like you're talking directly to
2: me. So many of us, I mean, I grew, I know that's how I grew up doing that. And then finally, I came to that point where, where we realized that, you know, you have to, you have to focus in, you have to really, you know, get to the fundamentals, you've got to, you've got to make reads and only reads. And then I've learned actually, not even to play, not even to test the reads with my oboe, actually to keep the oboe out of the picture. Because I know you can spend an awful lot of time starting to noodle around in testing your read, and that gets carried away. So what I really like to do is have those days that are just read making, with only testing the read, getting the read almost 99% finished with just what it tells us, with the crow, and with the response, and with all of the things it tells us without dealing with an oboe. And I think that in itself, by it's almost like being blind and needing to have other senses uh, heightened. And so when you work with an, without an instrument and just reed making, your sensitivities become even more heightened and, and for reeds themselves. And then to practice and only practice and not to mess around with reeds. In fact, if you picked a bad reed to start with, stick with it, suffer through it rather than, oh, I'm looking for a better read. Don't get so fussy. Don't give yourself that elbow room, you know? And I think that teaches students too, if you pass that on, which I try to do, um, the idea that we can't be switching our reads constantly. We can't be so fussy. When you're in an audition, you've got to play from the first excerpt through the seventh excerpt, and you, no one's gonna sit there waiting for you to switch a read and nor should you take that risk, probably of switching in the middle. So whatever's in your instrument or in your mouth at that time, you keep it there and you do the best job. And that's where, and that was something Ray Still kind of taught. He, you know, he had such an incredible ear and he just made things happen with his amateur and with his wind. He was an amazing, he could manipulate things to work. And so he would be the first person, he wouldn't even teach me reed making. He said, John, you've got to go to Gladys Elliott to learn reed making. I'm no good at it. But he always sounded good. And how did he do it? He did it through, he says, I make, I make terrible reads, But, you know, but he made them sound pretty darn good considering everything. And it was because he had that ability to make do with what he had. And now you blend that with taking more time and being a good read maker to get a better product with the discipline of using your ear and listening and not depending only on the reed. And then you get this balance of listening skills, using your air, minimizing, but utilizing the amateur efficiently and putting it together. And I think that is another good thing for students to remember when they go from one teacher to the next, everything's good. Just accumulate the good from the various people you work with. Every bit of it won't necessarily be what you wanna take down your journey. But take the good, take the good and, and make that stew your own your own creation, your own blend of the things that work for you in your life. And, and anyway, so I think that's a great thing. And students shouldn't be afraid to ask for lessons from various people. And I know I encourage my students to go out and take lessons with people because when they come back, they say, oh, guess what Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so said? You know, and I say, well, oh, that's terrific. Great, great. great. I told it to them last week. Too, you know. Also, it doesn't matter <laughs> they're getting it, and it's sticking when someone else says it. You know, <laughs>
1: that is so true. You're like I've been telling you that for three years, but it, <laughs> I'm glad you're. I'm glad you're coming around.
2: <laughs> nice. So so good, so
0: good. As someone who's done a lot of high stakes performing, what advice do you have for people struggling with performance anxiety?
2: oh, listen, that's such a good topic. And I don't know, I've, I've seen a look, I don't know if this if you guys have seen this or not, but it seems like there's been a little more performance anxiety of late than there ever seems to have been before. I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but it is something we do need to address actively. And, you know, I'm not a trained psychiatrist, so I can't really play, you know, the couch game with the, you know, talking through the psychological elements of it. I like to approach it from that which I can can deal with. And one of the things is for me to have my students, and I do this too, I mean, it comes from, from my own experience. I like to write in my music, in pencil folks, but write in my music as many things as I can to help me, remind me, encourage me to play as I want something to go. Even if a crescendo is written, perhaps I've played it the way it's written, and it, when I listen back in a recording, it's not enough crescendo. I will exaggerate that marking in the music. I'll put a smiley face if I want to feel happy somewhere. I'll put a few words of encouragement be at, in the opening margin before I start to give me the character of the piece, the sentiment, the emotional value of the piece. I'm trying to get into the mood of playing, especially in an audition scenario when we have to move quickly from one type of excerpt to another. It's important to get in the mood very quickly and to be in the right place in your, in your, the right space before you start. And so I like to encourage everyone to keep busy writing in encouragements, lines over notes, arrows forward for tempo rubato or backwards for Roland Tondos, um, maybe a squiggle line for vibrato to remind yourself to vibrate, whatever the best things that you've done, and the things that sound the best when you record yourself and playback and follow the music along with your pencil is what I try to do so that you practice each time you come back following your own numbers and, um, and hieroglyphics that you put in the music, you up your game You play at a higher standard. You uh, come back to the high standard. You don't start from scratch every time because you can't quite remember what happened best the last time. So you start to play at a higher level. And the objective being then when you go and play whatever it is you are to play in public at a recital or in an audition, that again, just like your best practice sessions, you reenact Those encouragements that you've given yourself all the time. And you're busy. You're very busy and involved with following those to great detail, exaggerating them. And my premise is with anxiety that if you're that busy, involved in your music, involved in playing it at that standard that you've achieved, you'll be far less conscious of what's going on around you. You just simply wherever you're playing, whatever different room that might be in, you have to come back to playing for yourself and to establish or try to beat your own standards, not to worry about other people, the way other people are playing in the warm up room or being self-defeating in that way. Rather, just be able to play at your um, level and, and to represent yourself well. And I think that again is gets into a little bit of a concept of competition, but uh, more or less, I think that we can really be positive about getting in front of people and having a job to do. And our job is to do the best as we can with that music. So to become involved and keep yourself focused, I think that's probably the main thing I would say about performance anxiety. In the in addition to eating well, sleeping, being sh- being sure to sleep, and and um, and you know they say a couple bananas for the potassium, and you know various things like that can't hurt. But but I think more than anything, it's about being well rehearsed, being ready. And uh, it's just like cramming for a test is never a, a good experience for anyone. But if you've studied and you really know your material, you go in with much more confidence. And I think that's probably the key to me, anyway.
1: You mentioned positivity, and you project such a beautiful sense of positivity and gratitude. And I would love to know what role that takes on in your teaching. And do you encourage your students to, to take on a positive mindset and an attitude of gratitude, if you will. And does that help with the, because I agree with you that there is a lot of not only performance anxiety, but general anxiety, Especially these days, and does does that help with you know guiding and mentoring your students through this career?
2: Yes, an attitude of gratitude. You just said it, and I tell you, I think that's a big root of a lot of good. And I I think that is a, is a, it's almost a grand secret that that I do I I do try to um, encourage my my uh, studio. And I just love your question because it's, it's filled with exactly the type of encouragement that we have to share with one another about what we do, especially as we know as double reed players, when, the, when we, we can't just pick that instrument up and expect it to be like it was yesterday, like a flute or, you know, we have that reed and, and most of the time we know we don't have a good reed even. It's not encouraging us, you know. We're not being encouraged from from uh, within the instrument. So we have to be very, we have to be very uh, hopeful people and very positive in our nature, um, looking for the good in something, like having that twinkle in our eye at every blank that it might end up becoming the next best thing, you know. <laughs> and so. I think, I think you nail it. Sometimes it's not even the topics we talk about, but I think you nailed it. I think because of your, your ability and your sensitivity, it's the unspoken word. It's the attitude that we bring to our studio and to our students that you just verbalized that I think is so important. So do I do that? I hope I do. I, I think that I've been pretty, pretty successful in students that have gone out and, and had very good careers, and they're playing actively now in, in some of the major groups in the world. But I, I, they'd be the ones to answer that. But I'll tell you what, I, I hope that I do. I hope that I do. Thank you. Thank you for bringing up the topic. It's a very important one. <laughs> but it starts at home. I think we need to stay positive sure. and stay organized in our read making, for example, so that we don't start crystal balling. The every read, rather, we have a, a bit of a scientific method involved, and that we approach things in a rational way, and we keep our read case organized. Uh, I think that it's a very important element to keep our read desk uh, as clear in a sense as our as our mind must be. you know, it's calming. It's calming to be simple and organized.
1: <laughs> if you have that, then it's easier to combat the uh, sense of impending doom <laughs> going into a practice session or a readmaking making session. I love that.
2: So true. So well put.
1: <laughs> what are
0: some ways that you approach running your studio class? And what have you found to be effective in terms of teaching in that group environment?
2: Yeah. Um, we have at the University of Illinois, like, like most of you probably have, we, we're fortunate to have not only the weekly lessons, uh, hour for each student, but we have um, Tuesday morning, an hour uh, class for performance studio, Oboe Studio. And on Thursday, uh, an hour in the morning for making class. So we have two studio classes. So every student has three hours of guaranteed exposure uh, in the Oboe Studio or to the teacher uh, each week. In performance class, we, or I choose, I should say, in in managing the class to speak to topics. So, for example, I'll have my graduate students, I'll find out what their interests are and their their, um, fortes, And this year, for example, I had five graduate students each give a presentation on a different topic and uh, having to do with performance uh, related. And so those would be like lectures and they'd be spaced out, uh, you know, maybe three weeks apart or so. And then we would in the first semester, I like to organize around orchestral excerpts training or audition training. Mm -hmm. Basically, that's that covers and what we'll do is we'll have um the music of course present and projected and i've also i always employ my tas in really getting them so involved so that when they step out of uh being a ta at the university of illinois they are really very much very much ready to step into a job um, because they're they're doing so many different things and um and I'm very proud of them. So I'll have them organize um, some of our uh, uh, shared screens and um, projected elements in the classes. But what we'll do is we'll work on orchestral excerpts. Well, they'll be played in each of our lessons so they get individual training on them. We'll do the class in them. We'll have uh, usually three players play uh, the excerpt for the day. We'll have written comments uh, they'll be offered, uh, afterwards. We'll have uh, verbal comments. Um, uh, also as a part of that training, it'll teach, uh, we have an atmosphere of learning that is uh, supportive and it's, um, we always start with a positive, uh, element to their playing. And then if there's a suggestion for improvement, and we keep it in, in, in a very positive tone like that. And the students are terrific um, uh, in doing that and very supportive of one another. And it creates that professionalism where I'd like to think that that's going to uh, continue on as they step into the woodwind section of an orchestra. Uh, and, um, and they're dealing with them, the you know, the other people around them um, in, in how they re- talk to them and how they uh, interact. Um, And so organizing that with a read class, of course, Zoom read classes are a special thrill uh, as you guys know. You really can't do very much when it comes to the edge of that tip. Uh, (laughs) But it is uh, an opportunity to speak to issues of selection of cane, um, gouging, shaping. And so we'll have uh, opportunities again for these lectures, demonstrations uh, work pretty well And then I do breakout rooms. And that's one of the nice things about the Zoom classes where breakout rooms where I have a graduate student in each of the breakout rooms, for example, and I'll butterfly. That is a great idea. All of them. Yeah. And it really does work out. So there can be that conversation going on uh, with, you know, four or five players in a room and uh, it works very nice in small group. So that's how we manage things pretty much over at the University of Illinois.
1: What is some of your favorite repertoire to play?
2: Oh, I'll tell you what, you know, I, I guess it goes back to almost my band days. And I enjoy band music as we used to do a lot of transcriptions uh, in high school, which was kind of fun. That's how I learned so much orchestral music early on. It was through the band, actually, and then until I got into an orchestra. But I think that rubbed off and I really enjoy the serenades, you know, like the, uh, the wind serenades of Mozart. I love those. Oh, aren't they fantastic? Yes. Or just because it's like having a small wind band, you know, pairs oh, of yeah. clarinets, bassoons, and horns, and that's probably my go-to. And then I really enjoy playing with string quartets, you know, or trios. So like the Mozart quartet, I've got a, a one of my recordings features that, and I, I, I just think that is a tremendous uh, way to to bridge what I'll consider the natural gap between a string play, player or techniques and wind techniques. And to, to really go, I really recommend students go to master classes of vocal and string technique, uh, master classes, uh, to, to try to emulate, whether it's a finger sliding on a string, which might be, uh, the equivalent of the reed uh, being rolled into the amateur a little bit and doing a bit of a, let's call it a lip slur, just learning a little bit of that technique that might be taken from a, a string technique and, uh, Oh, various, uh, you know, how the bow is used at the tip versus the frog and how that can be our palette of articulation, mm-hmm. um, to, to build those fundamental tools that we have to expand upon like articulation and, and, uh, Dynamics and um, and tempo rubato and um, intonational uh, differences, intervalic relationships, things like that, and uh, how to make changes, subtle changes in in in, in intonation, for example, without changing your armature, uh, which can be done with the right thumb, just by pushing in or pulling out the reed a little bit, and just again things that that you learn along the way, little trade secrets that. That again can somehow be um, initi- uh, initialized by going to master classes of other instruments and thinking about your applications. Uh, I think that's tremendous. Some other music, um, uh, you know, I love Poulenc. I think he's outrageous. The the Sextet and the and even the the Sonata and uh, the Trio for Oboe, Bassoon, and Piano, uh, which I got to play uh, a couple months ago with a mask on, which. Don't recommend to anyone, but looks like we have to do that kind of thing now. <laughs> uh, thankfully, no broken reeds. Uh, that was a remarkable feat, not to come away with a broken mm. reed. But, um, and uh, Berlioz, I think as, you know, when it comes to symphonic music, I think he's very colorful and interesting. And and uh, in opera, um, having had opera experience, it, you, just such gorgeous music. I mean, whether it's Puccini or even Verdi's many operas, uh, I think we're so lucky to have such beautiful repertoire to go to, whether it's solo, chamber music, which is so great, uh, in winds or in combinations. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I think we need to look at it and we can see the value with all the the different genres, whether it's opera, symphony, solo, or chamber music. And so I sort of have, oh, Mahler, love Mahler. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's a little when, when things are repeated to the 10th and 12th time, I might say, okay, maybe enough, but uh, (laughs) who am I to judge Mahler, you know?
0: (laughs) (laughs) What advice would you give to a young musician who aspires to have a career like yours?
2: I think it's probably more than anything. Enjoy what you do. Enjoy it. Don't look at, if, if you're looking at it as a, any type of hard labor, it's probably not for you. And if you enjoy it and it's your refuge, if it's someplace you can go to, to enjoy yourself for a moment or get, get away from this or that and you find yourself playing a little while to, to calm yourself down and to bring things into focus, that's the right attitude. Open When doors open, audition for everything. Say, especially for young students, say yes to almost everything. Um, uh, try try it all and to welcome uh, the, the different things that we do. Um, and And so I think keeping an open mind and being flexible in the profession is very important and pursuing the things that you like the most. And after a while, you know, you don't have to say yes to everything. If there's certain things that you're not preferring, then you say no and, and you kind of, kind of find your, your niche in there. Um, but I would say, be sure that you're enjoying it and take, take advantage of opportunities to play as much as you can and to, to share what you have um, openly with people. Um, it's, it's a small and, and friendly world that we have, in, especially the double read world. Um, and everything we can do to help one another, I think, is just for people understand that it's it's a giving world and not a not a not a selfish one. I think that's important okay? just to as a guide to our personalities. I think it's just to let them know that's the world they're in. I remember I, I was working at Edmund Nielsen's back in the day in Chicago when Mr. Nielsen was still alive and repairing instruments and Mrs. Nielsen was taking care of front of house, and she put me in charge of packing something or getting orders and filling them. And I remember a check wasn't in one of the envelopes, and I was the first time I had that happen. I said, Mrs. Nielsen, uh, do you want me to fill this order? There was no check. Um, And she goes, oh, yeah, just fill it and send it out. I said, well, well, what if they don't pay you? Um, And she goes, oh, John, it's a small world. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. You know, like, you know, we all know each other. It was mm-hmm. kind of a, it kind of made me think like that. It's like, oh, and, and, and if they didn't pay, I guess I figured, well, I guess they won't get any more orders from the Nielsens anymore if that, but at the at very worst. But I don't think that was really what she was saying. I think it was more like, it's all good. You know, we're, I've worked with them before and you know, we, we trust each other. And it was kind of a nice heartening lesson for a young man to, to hear you know so that was i think that's kind of the world we're in where people do things for free for each other
1: john this was such a warm and motivating and inspirational conversation thank you so so much for joining us on double reed dish we really appreciate it
2: delhi you're terrific and <laughs> jackie talk about warm and inviting you're the best you guys are super i appreciate <laughs> being here thank you
0: We hope you enjoyed that interview so, so, so much. Please follow us on social media and rate and review on iTunes. It does make a difference. Galit, who's coming up on our next episode?
1: Next episode, we are talking to the amazing and hilarious Miles Meer, bassoonist in the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Jackie, let's end this nerd parade.
0: Go make reads if it fits in your version of self-care for today. But it probably does, so do it. Make, make time for reads. How about that? Make time for reads. Yeah. Um...